Well, we'd better pray. We're going to talk about Seventh-day Adventism tonight. There's lots to talk about. We'll see how much we can get through. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we've had to cover such a breadth of information involving so many different groups. As we turn our attention to this particular group, I pray you'd give us insight, give us uh, fairness about the coverage of this. Uh, God, I just pray that we would have a, a time that gives us a practical uh, bit of information regarding history and theology that will give us uh, just the right answers and the right responses uh, to those that are a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. God, give us a good time of clear thinking and clear communication. I pray you'd govern this time. Thank you so much for your son and what he's done for us. Thank you for the ultimate gift that we have, that we're beginning to enter that season of uh, remembering the Incarnation. And this Christmas holiday, we just pray, God, this would be a a good time for us to be profoundly thankful for the finished work on the cross. Thank you so much, God, for that. We thank you so much for meeting us here the past nine weeks, and we pray for a good session here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's talk about Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists in the world today. Let's talk about that. This is their latest logo. Most of their logos will always have threes in them, which is not Trinitarian. Not that they deny the Trinity. Of course, they don't. Or I shouldn't say, of course. If you don't know, they don't. Uh, but you'll see often things in threes. We'll get to that. Um, unlike the Scientologists, I can trust the Seventh-day Adventist website to report accurately on their numbers. Uh, so that's good to know. And so this is the latest and greatest. It's uh, the most recent that they have, which was from last year, in terms of numbers. Uh, relatively small in terms of the world population, uh, very small even in terms of groups in the United States. And yet this is a growing organization with a lot of strength, a lot of money, uh, a lot of money per capita, and very influential. Uh, with claiming around the world 19 million members as of last year and every year for the past, I read reports on the past five or six years, uh, growing every single year in just about every department and every division. So this is a growing group. There's 81,000 churches. Uh, This is a a hierarchy, uh, much like an Episcopal or um, uh, even uh, similar to the Catholic Church in terms of structure. You're not a you're not going to be your own Seventh-day Adventist church. They're all connected to regional uh, groups and then ultimately the international headquarters. Uh, so these are legitimate uh, Seventh-day Adventist churches, 81,000 of them. Uh, they are missionally minded in terms of reaching people with the message of Adventism. If they take their founder seriously, that is of utmost importance uh, to do that, uh, not to mention Christ's call for all of us to share the gospel. There's 19,000 Uh, missionaries, uh, that's support and actual uh, preachers and um, uh, teachers in terms of missionary workers. Uh, As we'll see, there's a great emphasis on health care. There's 175 hospitals around the country. Uh, There are 62 publishing houses. There's voluminous work uh, that has uh, been put into their publishing arm. Uh, They distribute magazines and books, and uh, we'll look at that a little bit more closely as well. Uh, You should note just how evangelistic they are in terms of a worldwide presence. They're publishing right now, they claim on their website, in 379 languages around the world. So this is um, 
quite an influential group, small comparatively though it might be, and uh, certainly merits our attention. Uh, unlike some other groups, uh, the map may not be dotted quite as densely as some of the other groups we've looked at, but if you look for Seventh-day Adventist churches in and around our area, uh, you will see some. And uh, even here, our closest one in Laguna Niguel, if you know, this is kind of tucked away. You probably don't drive past it. Perhaps you do if you have business down there. This is the Seventh-day Adventist Church in our area off of Niguel Road. If you take Alicia Parkway uh, south to Niguel Road, turn right or turn toward the ocean and go up that hill, uh, it is on the right. And if you make a right at this corner, uh, you'll see it's also a school. Uh, They share their facility with a... Uh, Another evangelical church on Sundays, uh, but they are big in education too, as we'll see. Uh, But they also have their school there as well. If you look on their website, which is a great, a lot of information on their website, it's well run, it's well maintained, it's a user friendly site. Uh, You'll see they have what they have locally here. I just put from distance to our church, two and a half miles, you've got an Indonesian Seventh day Adventist church. I know this wording is super small, but I wanted to show you the chart at least. Uh, in Laguna Hills. That's part of what goes on at that site there in Laguna Niguel. They have the English-speaking church in San Juan Capistrano. They have a Spanish-speaking group uh, in Irvine. Uh, they've got a church there that claims 348 members. Now, like a lot of churches that keep membership roles, uh, usually have a lot more members than you have attendees. Nevertheless, 348 members in that church. In Costa Mesa, uh, they have uh, 225 uh, there's Spanish-speaking ministry there, uh, even more, 300 members of that. In Santa Ana, look at this. If you, I don't know if you can see it. It's so small. But over 1,000 members in their Spanish-speaking Seventh-day Adventist church in Santa Ana. Uh, in um, Santa Ana, they also have a Vietnamese uh, church of 165 members. Talked about schools. They're big on schools. We've got um, a day school, as I just showed you on the picture, in Laguna Niguel. Uh, They call it the Laguna Liel Junior Academy, uh, the Orangewood Academy in Garden Grove. They've got another preschool in Garden Grove. Uh, Then you get Riverside, which is a big enclave of Seventh-day Adventists, La Sierra University, the elementary school, the junior high. They've got the academy there. Uh, And then out in Marietta Springs, you've got another Adventist uh, church school out there. So in the area, that's what you've got. Not as densely uh, infiltrated in terms of uh, some of the other groups we might have looked at but uh, they are out here in our neighborhood and they're educating children and meeting, uh, in some cases, in Santa Ana in big, big groups in Spanish. Well, let's talk about Seventh-day Adventists in popular culture. Because of their focus on health care, uh, most of the things that you might run into uh, that, that we you know, will we'll connect with, you might, this isn't a great shot of it, I just tried to quickly pull one up, of the South Coast Medical Center there in Laguna Beach. I know uh, Mission has got an arm there, and that's a Roman Catholic hospital, but also the Adventist health uh, provider is running part of that there on uh, Pacific Coast Highways by uh, Thousand Steps Beach there in Laguna Beach. Uh, that thing's changed hands lots of times. been there many times as a pastor visiting people uh, at uh, South Coast Medical Center. Uh, Loma Linda is the biggest one, of course. You hear that a lot. Some of you may have been there for various things. They do a lot of uh, progressive procedures uh, at Loma Linda. It's a fantastic uh, organization. Uh, They also have the medical school there. Um, And like I said, a big group, big enclave of Seventh-day Adventists there in Loma Linda. Uh, White Memorial, as uh, we'll see, as you can see from the worksheet, White Memorial in L.A., 
uh, over there in East L.A. We pass right by it when you're on the I-5 going through Los Angeles. And uh, it's named after their founder, Ellen G. White, and a uh, very important, prominent uh, organization there in L.A. And then north of L.A. in Glendale, you've got the Glen- Glendale Adventist Medical Center, which is also huge. Um, uh, most notable fact about this is my wife was born there, so I always tip my hat when I drive by the Glendale Adventist Medical Center. So uh, that is familiar too. In, in popular culture, you're also, I talked about their educational system, La Sierra University, which is out in Riverside, hard to ignore in terms of its influence there. Smaller influence, but very important to them, Pacific Union College, which is not far from where Ellen G. White died in Northern California, not far from Santa Rosa. Um, small school, but important to the Adventists. Andrews University, which is the biggest, uh, which is in South Michigan near the border of Indiana. Uh, in a place called Bering Springs, uh, Michigan. Uh, Very big university, probably one of the most important uh, organizations they have. Union College in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, which is um, fairly big and long-standing. I think they're 125 years old. I may be wrong in that. Um, Big church right next door, College View Church. Uh, So that's a major university there. In, uh, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, in Collegedale, Tennessee, is Southern Adventist University. They've changed their name, but also a very big and prominent school. A lot going on there in terms of academics in uh, Collegedale, Tennessee. In terms of popular culture, you might have recognized this guy recently, a uh, prominent uh, neurosurgeon who became a um, Republican candidate uh, who didn't win, as we know. Has been tap dancing the last few days, apparently, with Trump about what he's going to do or not do. But nevertheless, uh, that's Ben Carson. You know him. Uh, And speaking of the president, uh, fired by the president in episode seven of season eight was Brian McKnight. Uh, He was on The Apprentice. He was the uh, American R&B singer, producer, musician, arranger. He was on the season with Joan Rivers. Uh, I know some of you watched that. Uh, Jesse James was on it. Herschel Walker was on that season. So he was fired after task seven, uh, Brian McKnight talented musician. Uh, We don't have quite the influence of Adventism in Hollywood and among the celebrities. Uh, It's a very different organization than what we've seen uh, with uh, Scientology or even Christian science. But here's one you should know, Will Kellogg. You think, I don't know Will Kellogg. Oh, I'll bet you do. Um, uh, The Kellogg organization Uh, very important, and so many uh, confluences of the theology of not cooking on the Sabbath and also nutrition and and diet and health, which is so important to the theology we'll briefly look at, uh, is the birth. It's the catalyst. I know, not Frosted Flakes, but back in the day when they got started, um, the popular things became the things I liked, Fruit Loops and Frosted Flakes. But uh, some of you still eat Special K, I'm sure or your cornflakes, and your parents didn't let you put sugar on it. Um, my brother ate pops, corn pops all the time. Anyway, that's an Adventist, um, birthed as an Adventist organization for theological reasons, uh, as it was we might have some time to talk about. Uh, a popularity recently that you might know is a man named Desmond Doss. Uh, he was the first um, 
Medal of Honor recipient from World War II who was a conscientious objector. And that's, I say, of late because um, Mel Gibson's latest movie that just came out on November the 4th called Hacksaw Ridge is all about Desmond Doss, a famous historical figure who was a Seventh-day Adventist. That's why he was a conscientious objector. Passivism is one of their um, hallmarks and uh, teachings from very early on. Uh, someone who um, proved to not be very pacifistic, um, and though he's not of the same character quality as the rest, is a guy you might know named David Koresh uh, in Waco, who was an offshoot of um, Adventism into the Davidian branch. Um, uh, that's not how I should say it. As a sect of Adventism that was a break-off sect, they became known as the Branch Davidians, he believed himself to be, as you know, if not, you should uh, watch one of the biographies on his life, uh, a kook and a nut. Um, and of course, Adventism doesn't want to claim him, but uh, a lot of his theological um, roots were in, his theological roots were definitely in Adventism, but the brand of Adventism that went off it has its identity, its name, that flag there. I tried to get a picture of the flag flying. They have their own uh, logos and all the rest. Anyway. Uh, Mount Carmel Center, Waco, Texas. You might remember the Branch Davidians. Uh, I'll add this because the circles that we run in, the, uh, the, the overlap of influence is not just in culture, but it's in our Christian culture. In our Christian culture, unlike other groups we've looked at, uh, you're not going to go, at least not yet, to the you know, average Christian bookstore and pick up books by you know, Hindu leaders or Buddhist leaders or Scientologists, uh, but you're going to find the influence of Seventh-day Adventism in the circles you might run in in terms of uh, religious publishing, broadcasting, and, and, and even television. And they're big in television. Their um, network is called the Three Angels Broadcasting Network. Some of you try to gravitate toward different things that uh, are a little bit more friendly for your kids and your moral uh, sensibilities. And if you got back in the day, I remember we got that Sky Angel, you know, satellite thing and three... Um, the Three Angels Broadcasting Network is a very prominent part of that. And they do so much. It's really a huge organization. <clears throat> they do news. They do broadcasting. They have programming uh, on the Three Angels Broadcasting Network. Uh, they do news. Uh, I don't know if you track with any of this. Uh, but Los Angeles had a very prominent radio program called The Voice of Prophecy, which is a Seventh-day Adventist uh, organization. Uh, they're still going. I threw up an old uh, classic picture of their headquarters there in L.A., uh, Hope Channel is, is one of the Adventists' uh, 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 organizations, their, their network. Uh, the Adventist uh, World Radio, they're all over the world as part of their evangelistic and, and missional uh, outreach around the world. You see the three trumpets, you see the three angels, you're seeing the pattern of the three, and, and that's very important to them of these three angels in the message of Revelation 14, as we'll see. Uh, things like Safe TV, uh, they, they put that out. Uh, as a, an alternative to mainstream television. The Amazing Discovery television, uh, which I do think is a, more than a program, although I know it is a program. The one you probably have seen, even flipping through channels here on, uh, on, on our Cox cable, is The Amazing Facts. Uh, he's very uh, uh, engaging, very articulate uh, teacher. Uh, this is about 
put this up. You probably see him like this on the television, uh, always talking about biblical prophecy, talking about all kinds of things related uh, ultimately to the Sabbath and various aspects of Adventism. But uh, you've seen him. Smile at me if you've seen Doug Batchelor. Uh, no? No, no. Okay. Some of you have. I'll just believe that you have. Pacific Press is one of their publishing wings. That's in Oakland, California, up north. And uh, you'll be going through the bookstore. You might not, not ours, but you'll, you know, be at a Christian bookstore, family, you know, bookstore or, or Lifeway store, and you'll pick up books. Sometimes you'll see they're from Pacific Press. If you see that, you know that's an Adventist uh, author, an Adventist uh, book. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is Review and Herald Publishing Association. That's in Maryland. And uh, they've got a, a giant uh, printing and publishing footprint that uh, prints um, here in America. So they have an influence that you're going to bump into in your Christian life that uh, relates to what they broadcast, what they put on the radio, and what they um, are, are publishing. It all began, though, in terms of what we know of as as Seventh-day Adventism with Ellen G. White. Uh, Ellen G. White. Um, Ellen G. White was born Ellen Harmon as a twin, or twin was Elizabeth, uh, in 1827 in uh, rural Maine. Uh, she was raised in a Methodist home, and uh, family was practicing, and she was brought to church. And uh, she lived in a very interesting time in terms of what was happening in the scene of Protestantism uh, in America, and that was one thing we need to uh, talk about, and that is the rise of premillennialism in America. The trend was increasingly a focus on biblical prophecy and clarifying what the Bible says about the coming millennium and the promises of the millennium. Now, many people had been either amillennial or had been postmillennial. A lot of the the traditions of those that had surrounded her life and, and her family had been post-millennial. They, post-millennial. That means that before the coming of Christ, you had this time of what they would call the golden age of, of God's influence on earth. In other words, things would go really, really well. And, and after that period of time, whether it was literal uh, in terms of post-millennial theology uh, or, or whether it was not, you had either a thousand years literally or you had a period of, of God's uh, rule on the planet and then Christ comes back. Um, premillennialism was on the rise with a more careful look at Scripture to say, no, Christ is going to come back, not when things are going well, but when things are not going well theologically. Uh, there's going to be apostasy. There's going to be a falling away. And then Christ is going to come back. And then there's going to be a, a just brief to make real brief the, the, the eschatological calendar, there would be the millennium, the tribulation, but then the millennium. So the millennial kingdom, in other words, it, it put an emphasis on the imminence of Christ's return. It could happen at any time. Christ's going to come back and, and, and you know, we, we need to be ready to meet Christ because he could come at any time. As opposed to a post-millennial view that says, we've got a lot of work to do here. The world's a mess. We're working on it. Let's try and reform the planet. And then eventually Christ can come back as we lay the welcome mat out for him and roll the red carpet out as we've kind of uh, Christianized society. Uh, well, that really affected her. 
In, in one of her many books, Life Sketches, page 20, uh, she wrote this. And I know these words are kind of small, but maybe you can catch them. For, for, for four years previous to this, uh, she's telling, recounting some of her childhood stories. Uh, on my way to school, I had picked up a scrap of paper containing an account of a man in England who was preaching that the earth would be consumed in about 30 years from that time. That was another feature of what was going on in terms of biblical prophecy in, in her childhood in, in America at that time and around in, in Europe as well. Um, she took that piece of paper talking about the coming of Christ and even date setting was, was, was on the rise. She took the piece of paper, she read it um, uh, to the family. And in contemplating the event predicted, the return of Christ, I was seized with terror. The time seemed so short for the conversion and salvation of the world. You could tell she's a spiritually minded young person. With such a deep impression was made upon my mind by the little paragraph on that scrap of paper, I could scarcely sleep for several nights and prayed continually continually to be ready when, when Jesus came. So one of the things, I mean, I don't know how many things didn't let you sleep for several nights. That may be hyperbole, but clearly she's expressing the way her thoughts regarding being prepared for the return of Christ affected her greatly as a, as a young child. Um, that was on her mind while other things were on our minds at that age. Uh, she was very sensitive to that and, and thinking often about the return of Christ. So that was the age she grew up in. Premillennialism was on the rise. At age nine, uh, she encounters a, a head trauma, a head injury. She gets hit with a rock uh, at age nine, and it, uh, they were fearful for her, uh, for her life. She was unconscious, uh, biographers say, and she says, for three weeks. Uh, so this was a serious injury, and she was never the same in terms of what she could do in her schoolwork as an as a elementary school student. She had to drop out of school in the third grade and, and, and never returned, at least to formal uh, education. At age 12, she, her family rather, uh, begins to follow uh, the Millerites, William Miller. And, and of course, she's dragged along as a 12-year-old, spiritually minded, interested in Christ. Uh, and she is thinking about the return of Christ. Everyone is, her family is. And William Miller is a figure now we need to spend some time talking about and thinking about. William Miller was a Baptist preacher fixated on prophecy. Uh, his movement uh, came to be known as the Millerite movement, and those that followed him were Millerites. Uh, the feature of his eschatology, his view on the end, came primarily from uh, Daniel chapter 8, uh, verse 14. Um, let me read, I, I should read that for you, I didn't put it up on the screen, but I heard a holy one speaking, I'll start in verse 13, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, you can't jump into a passage like that, right, without some knowledge of what's going on in the prophetic scene in Daniel, and it's I mean, it's rich. I mean, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves, and like a lot of things in the Bible, uh, the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. You've got to, uh, you've got to work at them. They're hard to understand. You've got to understand something about history. You've got to understand something about what this prophet, prophecy is pointing toward. Uh, and, of course, the standard uh, interpretation is the period between the Testaments, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who comes in and routes the temple and the Judas Maccabeus and the Restoration, which I've taught on. If you haven't heard any of that, I've uh, given some tight... Uh, explanations of that in, in a short period. I did a 30-minute thing on it uh, a few years back on, on PowerPoint. You should get that if you're not familiar with that. Anyway, 
The point is, uh, this is the key verse now, the next verse. And he said to me, this angel delivering this prophecy, for 23 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Okay, now here's the passage that if you're reading it in context and even understanding something about what most people would assume this is pointing to, which, by the way, after you get to New Testament times, you look back, and as I said in the presentation when I went through that whole prophecy and I went through what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes and Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, it is exactly to a T being fulfilled precisely as it is, as it's laid out in the prophetic word of Daniel. So... 400 years later, well, actually 300 years later, this all takes place. By 400 years later, in the Gospels, we're looking back at that, and we're seeing all these things being fulfilled. Christ throws a wrench in all of that by using phrases like the desolation uh, that makes, or the abomination that makes desolate, uh, the, des- the abomination of desolation as we know it, um, and he talks about it coming in the future. Okay, well, that's like a lot of things that we see. Uh, we had a we had an, a prophetic word about the coming of Christ, uh, but that prophetic word of the coming of Christ, we didn't know, came in two installments. Christ would come back as the king sitting on the throne of his father David in a triumphal appearing at a second coming, not a first coming. And so some of these prophecies, people started to see there's a future uh, application of. And so that was being I mean, that was all the rage in the day of, of William Miller as he was preaching these things. So he takes this phrase of 23 evenings, and I put in brackets, uh, and mornings, because it is a strange Hebrew construction. Uh, uh, vav, which is the most frequent and common Hebrew word there is, is a connective. It's an. It's like in Greek, chi. It's the most frequent word used. Um, is missing between these two words, missing intentionally, which really sends, you know, uh, interpreters into a bit of a spin. Some people say, well, it doesn't mean anything, even though we normally see mornings and, or evenings and mornings, or oftentimes we see mornings and evenings, and's not there. It has led some to try and say, well, maybe this is about the morning and evening sacrifices, and 2,300 of them is really half of that in terms of time, which is what, uh, 11 whatever that is, right? I'm a, I'm a theology guy and a math guy. Um, so anyway, we can talk about that in a minute because there's some alternatives to this. But he says what this is, is 23 evenings and mornings. And since Daniel chapter 9, which I've taught on extensively a couple of times, you can go back and, and, and get that through our eschatology series back in 2007. I had a whole night on Daniel chapter 9. Uh, we see that those seven weeks represent seven years, and there's no other way to look at that when you lay out the prophecy. So he took this, saying, well, if seven, if, if a week is, is, is seven years, and, and then a day, maybe that's a, a year, and so evening and morning, that's one day, so we've got 2,300 years, and what does the passage say? And then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. He took that to mean the millennial kingdom is going to arrive. Uh, The world, not the sanctuary, but the sanctuary of God on earth, the glory of God on earth is going to be restored. So he said, okay, when does this start? Well, he picked a starting point of 457 uh, BC, which is where you go if you're reading Daniel chapter 9, at least it's one of the options you have, as to when to start the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy. If we know where that ends, at least the 69th week. And if this, I'm, this is too complicated for some of you. You need to pick up these lectures that we've talked about these things. You can't understand the origins of Seventh-day Adventism without at least getting your hands dirty with biblical prophecy. 
Okay, that was my disclaimer to keep going deeper here. But here we go. You've got, you've got no doubt about what's happening after 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel's prophecy. What you have is the coming of the Messiah, the cutting off of the Messiah. And, and we say, okay, well, this is the Messiah cut off by the people of the prince that is to come. So some antichrist down the road cuts off the people of Christ. So they kill the Messiah, 69 weeks. I know that. So I can understand that I've got to start that particular timeline where it says where there's a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Well, if that's the starting point, and it's complicated because we had to deal with that when we dealt with Daniel chapter 9, there's the decree of Darius, there's the decree of Xerxes, there's there's the command of Artaxerxes. There's really four choices you have to start that clock to get to the 69th week. And at the end of 69 weeks, if you do that in any one of those, and they're all within a few years of each other, you get to anywhere between 30 AD and 33 AD, and, and that gives you the cutting off of the Messiah at the cross. And so it, it's a tight prophecy once you try and figure that out. Well, if the starting point is, is the decree, which I didn't agree with his date, I wouldn't have agreed with that as I did the math and, and worked through this in my own eschatology, but he's close. Nevertheless, he starts it at 457. And he says, that's when this is going, going to start. And now he just adds, all he does is add 2,300 years. And when he adds 2,300 years to that, that gets him to the fall of 1883, where they're living in the years ramping up to 1883. So he gets real excited, as does everyone else. There's a prophecy now coming that he's starting at the decree of Artaxerxes, and it's going to end when the, the sanctuary is going to be restored. I'll read it again. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. He takes the sanctuary to be the world. He takes the restoration to be the millennium. He, he knows the millennium requires the return, physical return of Christ. So now he's out there preaching. If I add those 2,300 years to that, I'm now at my, you know, the next few years. So he's preaching, preaching, preaching. He's in his 60s. Uh, near the end of this calendar, he was preaching. I, I wrote it down, I think, somewhere here. Let me see if I still have it. He, he preached 65 times in eight weeks. 65 times, that's, that's 56 days as he's cruising all around teaching these prophetic truths. Uh, and, and, and he's exhausted. Uh, I don't know why I say that, I guess, as a preacher. I feel for this guy preaching, preaching, preaching every day, two, two times a day. Um, okay, so everyone in the fall of 1883 is waiting for this event. And a lot of people sell their their property. A lot of people, you've heard the stories, maybe you haven't, you know, a lot of people got their white robes on, went to high places, high hills. A lot of people, you know, cashed in their money, refused to get dental work done, whatever, you know, they just, they were just going to wait for the return of Christ. Uh, Well, it didn't happen. It goes without saying it didn't happen. So he changed the date to March 21st, 1884, because he took the calendar year and he said, the Jewish calendar, he said, it's, we're going to, that year has to see this. So we're going to finish that Instead of starting that, it'll be at the end. So that's going to be the date. And he set the date to March 21st, uh, 1884. Um, well, it, it, it didn't happen. March 21st, 1844. Sorry, I said that wrong. Correct me when I say things wrong. I need that. And you did. And I appreciate that. Uh, I'm sorry, that date is wrong completely is what you're trying to tell me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could change that. Uh, 
It'd be really cool if I changed it really quick right now, wouldn't it? Because I will go back to that sometime and go, wow, I should have, uh, I should have changed that. Did you saw all that, what I just did, unfortunately, probably? 1884. Now, there you go. Thank you. I know. The things that make you happy. March 1884. That's what I meant to say. Okay? So he, he adds that, that, uh, that change. Okay? It didn't happen. goes without saying. Christ did not come back. Then, uh, based on Habakkuk 2 and based on Leviticus uh, about the um, Day of Atonement, uh, which is the 10th day of the seventh month, uh, he had some friends say, well, it's got to be that. We've got to do this on the Day of Atonement. Uh, a lot of back and forth on all of that. I could get into the details if I could recall them all. And uh, we ended up, he ended up buying that. Great. The 10th month, the seventh day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, Yom Day, Kippur Atonement, the Day of Atonement, that's when he's coming back. And for him, that's it. It's got to be this date, and, and, and I'm putting all my marbles on, on that. So that year, and there was debate, by the way, as to when the day of it... Oh, I made a... Thank you. Yeah. You're telling me the date's wrong again, isn't it? Uh, oh, I, you know what I did? Yeah, now you know. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now I got it right. I'm, I've changed theology like crazy for the Adventists. They're freaking out. It's not... You got the dates all right. Now I got it. Now all the... All the Adventists are happy at this point because I finally got the date right. Thank you. Is, is that right? The fall of eight, 1843, he changed it to March 21st, 1844. Then he changed it to October 22nd, 1844. See how easy it is for preachers to make mistakes with dates? It's one of the reasons we're told not to set any. But anyway, because we're not numbers, guys. Now, is all that right? Okay, thank you. As far as you know, it's right. Well, Mil- William Miller realized it's all wrong because on October 22nd, uh, 1844, now it's sounding right, coming out of my mouth. Thank you. It's been a very long day. Uh, it didn't happen. This date became known as the Great Disappointment, as you can imagine, right? Um, and that wasn't a joke. I mean, that's what it was known. I got books in my library all about the Great Disappointment, the Great Disappointment. This was everyone now saying, not everyone, but many people saying, I've had it. And they were running from William Miller and the Millerites. And we won't go into it because I'm really here to talk about Ellen G. White and Adventism. But William Miller uh, was broken over this and he actually repented. He repented of setting dates. He repented of doing this. He was exhausted. He took a big step backwards. And there was still a band of people who said, you may not like what you've done, but um, we're going we're gonna to take the ball from here and continue. October 22nd, 1844, I can't believe that wasn't coming out of my mouth, is the date. And, and that sprang into what we know of as Adventism. So let's talk about the origins of Adventism. The origins of Adventism. Ellen claims within two months of the Great Disappointment, no, October, November, December. Yeah, two months. I'm questioning everything about my numbers now. <laughs> she claims to start having visions. Um, and and there, there is so much information written by her and by the early uh, founders. And I've read so much. There are slight contradictions. But this is really her first official vision of many that she has. 
uh, and claims to have. And, and she starts in, in December of 1844. Uh, basically, the gist of that first vision, and one of the most important things that comes out of the corpus of all that she was claiming to have seen, was that the October 22nd, 1844, was not wrong. She even claims that the wrong date of 1843 wasn't wrong. It was wrong, but God meant it to be wrong. Uh, and eight, October 22nd, 1844, is the day when things in heaven really happened. Things started happening. Through time, it took a time for this to develop into the wording and the way that it turned out to be, but eventually the claim was that Christ did return on that date. He just didn't return to earth. He returned to the heavenly temple. He came out of the holy place to cleanse the the holy of holies, to cleanse the holy place, to make atonement uh, for us. And we'll talk a lot about that. So we'll get to that. But she claimed an invisible return of Christ to start cleansing our, our sins. Well, in the midst of all this, actually a year after 1844, she meets James White, um, a fellow Millerite. She marries him in 1846. That number's right. 1846. She marries fellow Millerite James White in 1846. Not the James White from Arizona uh, that you hear on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry. No one knows James White. Um, all right. She claims that she now has the insight from God as to what happened on uh, October 22nd, 1844, and she starts uh, teaching about this. She starts to go on a tour preaching to Millerites about what has happened in her visions that she's seen that God allowed her to see because all of this talk about the advent of Christ Now the passion was waning, and she says, no, it shouldn't wane because Christ is coming back, and he's coming back really, really soon because he's already stepped into the heavenly sanctuary that's talked about in the book of Hebrews, uh, that the earthly ones were only a copy of the things in heaven. And so Christ is there doing ministerial work that is just the pre-advent work that he has to do before he comes at the advent and comes to, to take us. And so she's even setting up some of her own teaching uh, venues, but people were inviting her that were still uh, wanting to hear about what might have happened. They're trying, many of them, I hate to say, are trying to save face because they had, be, they looked, they had egg on their face. They, they would look like fools, some of them uh, admitted, because they had bought into Miller's, William Miller's teaching. She claimed in her lifetime over 2,000 visions. Many of them are filled with pr- pr- prophetic predictions. There's a lot of I mean, all of visions that she declares are prophetic. And if you've heard me teach on the Hebrew word nabi and the concept of the prophet, all all visions that are declared are prophetic. But she claims predictive prophecies as well uh, and gives insight into things that um, she writes in in voluminous ways, as we'll see in a minute. But I just thought I'd give you some uh, examples of, of the things that she claims to have seen. The visions, by the way, were recorded by observers who would watch her physical body. They would watch her sometimes just be like, they would claim it wasn't really a trance, but she wouldn't be there able to talk to you. Her eyes would be open. She'd be staring. Uh, All kinds of things were said about the way she sat and and had these visions. Uh, She claimed angels would appear to her. She claimed she went places. Uh, Here's an example. Wings were given to me in one of her visions. This is from her writings, The Early Years, volume one, page 156. Uh, wings were given to me, and an angel attended me from the city. I should tell you, I have all of her writings that the White Estate have released. I have everything she's written and all of these quotes in context. I've gathered them myself, read the context. Just, I'm not quoting some, you know, anti-SDA uh, 
work, by the way. So anyway, wings were given to me, she claims. An angel attended me from city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was was living green, and the birds uh, war, there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were of all sizes. Uh, they were noble, majestic, and, and lovely. Uh, they bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenance beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. I asked one of them why they were so much why they were so much more lovely than those on earth. And the reply was, we have lived in strict obedience to the commandments of God and we have not fallen by disobedience like those on the earth. So a lot of her visions are about the problem with the earth. It starts to sound, in many ways, reflecting the corruption of all the religions as we saw uh, with Taz Russell and with uh, uh, our, our Mormon friend Joseph Smith. Um, so there was problems and it needs to be fixed and I'm going to entrust you information and you now have special access to other worlds that I've given you and you've seen how things can be, uh, but we just don't have obedient, uh, Christians down there on earth. Uh, here's one from her early writings of Ellen G. White, page 40. She says, then I was taken to a world which had seven moons and there I saw good old Enoch. I mean, she's claiming all kinds of fanciful things who had been translated up to heaven. On his right arm he bore a glorious palm, and on each leaf was written victory. Around his head where it was a dazzling white wreath and leaves on the wreath, and in the middle of each leaf was written purity. I begged my attending angel to let me remain in that place, but I could not bear the thought of coming back to this dark world again. And the angel said, quote, You must go back if you are faithful. You, with 144,000, shall have the privilege of visiting all the worlds and, the, and viewing the handiwork of God. This, again, was one of the... Uh, characteristics, as we saw in, in the JWs as well, the Jehovah Witnesses, of uh, an initial lock-on to that, that prophetic number in the book of Revelation of the 144,000 that were special and chosen, which we understand, or I understand, as these Jewish missionaries that are reaching people during the tribulational period. This became the, the number of, of, the, of the saints and the redeemed, uh, if, if you're faithful. If you, you, then you'll have the privilege of, of visiting this place. But for now, you've got a job to do, and so much of her writing is about coming back and, and sounding the alarm uh, for the problem that we have on the planet in the church, the, the apostate church. Spiritual gifts, uh, number three, I'll just give you some random, I just want to give you a sense of some of the, the, the prophecies that she gives and, and the visions that she has. She says things like this, every species of animal which God has created were preserved in, in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the result of an amalgamation, uh, they were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast. That, you, know, you see what that means, right? The copulation of, of humans and animals um, and, and, and a creation of another, of another species here. Uh, amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men. So even claims in her visions of uh, people on earth, ethnic groups that were, uh, as she called it, the amalgamation, which some of these things become embarrassing for uh, Adventists, and they work really hard, and they're a sharp group, and they're, uh, you know, a lot of highly educated, you know, white-collar, smart people that work to, to defend a lot of the things that Ellen G. White says. And they'll claim, although, well, whatever, I, I shouldn't, well, I don't have time to defend the statements I was about to make. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, page 34. As Adam came forth from the hand of his creator, he was of, no, he was of noble height and of beautiful symmetry. 
He was more than twice as tall as men now living on earth. Again, I'm just giving you a sense that she claims to get behind the veil to see from these visions what God is giving her that we wouldn't otherwise know. If you've been back with us in the bibliology section, that's called revelation. She's claiming revelation. Things you would not otherwise know, God is revealing to her and she's relaying to us. I don't know how tall Adam is, but now I know if I believe that she is revealing to me these these truths. Testimonies of the Church, Volume 1, page 259. Said the angel, Hear, O heavens, the cry of the oppressed and the reward of the oppressors double according to their deeds. Uh, This, by the way, is regarding the Civil War. She's in the midst of the Civil War right now. She says, This nation will yet be humbled into the dust. So America, she claims, is going to be pulverized. England is studying whether it's best to take advantage of the present weak condition of our nation. So England's going to come in. When England does declare war, all nations will have an interest of their own to serve, and there will be general war and general confusion. I mean, as I read through her her prophecies that come from her visions, uh, things like this, England's going to engage in the... uh, American Civil War, America's going to be pulverized to dust, England's going to take advantage of our weakness. Of course, those things never happen. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, page 208. I saw that some of those present would be food for worms, some subjects for the seven last plagues. So she's seeing people in the present, in her age, they're going to be food for worms, and they're going to be subject to the things written about in the book of Revelation, the seven last plagues. And some would be translated to heaven at the second coming of Christ without seeing death. These are the kinds early on in the hype of all that was going on in in early Adventism claiming that the time is short. Christ has come back to to the, in the invisible coming to the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary. Now he's coming back. People in our age, there's people here that aren't gonna, aren't gonna die before Christ comes back. Which of course they're, they're all dead now. Ministry of Healing, page 291. Just She was all over the place and, and so many things. She talks about the fashions of the day. One of the fashion's wasteful and mischievous devices is the skirt that sweeps on the ground. Uncleanly, uncomfortable, inconvenient, and unhealthful. Uh, all this and more is true of the trailing skirt. I mean, she took full advantage of the gift that she claimed to have in terms of commenting on a variety of things, including the fashions of the day. And then you can read about this, which I have, uh, the, 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 the uh, detail she went to to try and uh, change the way people even wore their clothes, um, which I had to have this one because at this point it, we were getting, I mean, what was that, the next page, 91, 92, I read. She goes on to talk about clothing. Of serious evil is the wearing of skirts so that their weight must be sustained by the hips, Right? This heavy weight pressing upon the eternal, internal organs drags them downward and causes weakness of the stomach and a feeling of lassitude. That means I want to, don't want to do anything today. Inclining to the wearer to stoop, which further cramps the lungs, making correct breathing more difficult. She wrote at least 17 times more information than we have in the Bible. Book after book. And, and, and so she's into all kinds of, of topics. If you want to read source material yourself, in this case, Logos does help us. Uh, they have available here for 70 bucks the whole life work collection of Ellen G. White. Um, and, and it's accessible. What's great about that is it's searchable. You can look up the word amalgamation and find every passage on it. You can look up the words whatever you want uh, in, in terms of things that we'll talk about tonight, and it's all searchable, and, and, and uh, it's there. And as it says in the description of that particular uh, work. It's all the works that are published by Ellen G. White, except the unpublished manuscripts now being released by the Ellen G. White estate, which 
is also a controversy, which a lot of people claim on both sides. Well, we're not keeping anything back. Others saying you are keeping things back. Insiders who have defected saying there's most embarrassing documents that she wrote haven't been released. The white estate is keeping those behind lock and key. I read both sides of all of that. But you'll get 402 books, pamphlets, periodicals, manuscripts, messages, um, and learn all about the writings of Ellen G. White and read the source material yourself if you choose to. Overall, she wrote 49 books, 5,000 articles, and she has really been prolific in her day. So, uh, the role of Ellen G. White. Here she is writing. Now, I want to talk about, on the back of your worksheet, the role of her writings, because we always want to talk about authority in any group, and here's where it gets a little muddy and a little messy. Let's try and work this through as fairly as we can. The official position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the doctrine of authority is, and they even use the words, sola scriptura, the scripture alone. I've read it in questions on doctrine. I've read it in the 27 articles of faith, which they now have the 28 articles. I've read so much source material that will constantly go back to saying the Bible is our authority. For instance, here's their official statement on their website. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as the only source of our beliefs. It's the only source of our beliefs. We consider our movement to be the result of the Protestant conviction of sola scriptura. And everybody in the room, I hope, would say amen to that. That's what we want. The Bible as the only standard of faith and practice for Christians. You read that on a website, you're going to say, that's my kind, of, my kind of church. That's fantastic. Which, by the way, if you do want to read the website, it's adventist.org, adventist, singular, dot org. And if you go on the page, I just, again, I just try to do green, grab screenshots real quick. And the first thing you see on that particular banner that goes by is spirituality, prophecy, dash, God's continuing conversation. <laughs> Even with that banner, you now have an alarm going off saying, well, wait a minute, sola scriptura, we better figure that out. And, and, and that, there, there's the rub. They may claim sola scriptura, but here's the rub. They claim something from the text of Revelation chapter 19 called the spirit of prophecy, which will also connect to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, but they love that phrase. That's the phrase they say has been active in the church, particularly in the last day revelation coming through Ellen G. White. So they believe in that. Let's read what they say about it. This is from their website. When they lost their way, the people of God, God sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, quoting a passage of scripture there. God's prophets are his messengers. Okay, now think this through. She's just, I mean, the whole context of this is that Ellen G. White is, is a prophet. God's prophets are his messengers, appointed to speak his words. Okay, our human nature made it impossible to see, for us to see God face to face. So we're not going to have that conversation face to face with God. But just because we have kept, we have to keep our distance does not mean that he must remain silent. Adventists believe prophecies are God's way of continuing his conversation with us. Okay, so in one screen of the website, we hear something that all of us as Protestants, I hope, can say that is what we believe. Sola Scriptura, singular source of authority, the final arbiter of all practice and faith. And then you say, okay, but then there's this other page all about what we call the spirit of prophecy. And the spirit of prophecy is God is actively continuing the conversation with words like prophet. God's prophet are calling his people back, which is exactly the history of Ellen G. White. She's calling her people back, as we'll see. 
This is from Seventh-day Adventist Questions on Doctrine, page 82. It is our belief that the Holy Spirit opened to her mind, Ellen G. White, important events and called her to give certain instructions for those last days, okay? Now, I'm thinking, if that's the Holy Spirit, and if that's revealed to her, and if that's instruction, and if that's for the last days, it's not for days on a calendar, it's for the people living in those days, then that information is for me. Is it binding? Is it authoritative? Is it God's word for me? Is it the Spirit's authoritative information? I'm left with that struggle, which I'm thinking, if the Holy Spirit is speaking, and the Holy Spirit's giving instructions, if he's revealing things, I I think I I should follow that as authoritative. And inasmuch as these instructions in our understanding are in harmony with the Word of God, and they'll throw that in. I've read it so many times this week. It's got to be in keeping with the Word of God. Well, when I find that Adam is twice as tall as any man today, right, I don't know how to, whether that's in keeping with the Word of or God or not. I don't know if that's in harmony with the Word of God or not, right? I, I, I can't tell you. All I can tell you is if she's been there hanging out with Enoch and comes back and tells me that, then I guess... I got to believe you because the Spirit of God is giving instruction through you, no matter what it is she's saying. Do you see the conundrum that leaves us in? Which the Word of God is alone able to make us wise unto salvation. I do think that's a little bit of the niche we start to see through. Okay, the Bible is that source of authority. It is the thing that makes us capable of being saved. It, it saves us, right? But we as a denomination here, we as a denomination, accept them as inspired counsels from the Lord. What do we accept? Those, things, those instructions, those are inspired counsels from the Lord. And I don't know, when you start using the word inspired, I, I'm thinking that seems authoritative. But we've never equated them with Scripture as some falsely charge. I, I struggle just as a, you know, as a logical person trying to exegete a paragraph like that. If, if it's the Spirit of God opening her mind to important events and then giving me instruction... And that's the Spirit of God giving that to me. And it's an inspired counsel. I I think that's super duper important. And I don't know what else to do but to say, as long as it's in harmony with Scripture, it's as as authoritative, but it's not equated with Scripture. This is the constant struggle. A lot of talk. This is why smart guys like Anthony, Anthony Hokema can say, there's no way. They don't claim her as an authority. And others can say, well, I don't know. They really don't because their website says, or their leaders say, or their books say, she's not an authoritative uh, voice. Here's my copies. I just took a picture of my uh, Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentaries that I've had for years uh, on my shelf and consult from time to time. Uh, I just want to show you that this is a set of books commentating on the Scripture which is done by the scholars of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and every single chapter ends with an interpretation that's given from Ellen G. White. And again, if she is the last-day spokesperson with inspired counsels for us between the time of the 1844 investigative judgment until the advent of Christ, I think that's important for me to understand those things. And if you go on Logos, you can actually get this all hot link. But at the end of every chapter, you will have a series of hot links or the printed version, a series of references to go to all of her writings to figure out why the things they just said about that passage are true and right and why it's a sound interpretation because these are all the things Ellen G. White said. And I don't think I've gone to a single chapter in their 
in their commentary that doesn't have a list of references. And I didn't even, I mean, this is just an average one. And in this case, there's got to be, what, 14, 20 different references here of, of places to go to interpret. In this case, it looks like uh, Daniel 8, because I happen to be in that today. So, and you could say, well, you know, there's the Ryrie Study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, all these study Bibles. Okay, there's, it's one thing to have a Bible scholar or a Bible, you know, academic commenting on the text we don't have the sense that I've been to other planets with seven moons talking to Enoch about these things. You see what I'm saying? That's a little different. That's a kind of, you know, commentary in the margin that I think bears more weight to any logical, any logical person. So the role of Ellen G. White, it's a little complicated, at least today. And you see a lot of what I call tap dancing to try and figure out what you mean by what you say regarding what her role is in terms of my life and the authority her writings have in my life. Well, I want to look at what she said. This comes from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, pages 147 148. I think this is really clear in her mind, the role that her writings are supposed to play. In ancient times, God spoke to men by the mouth of the prophets and the apostles, right? There's a reference or at least an allusion to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. But in these days, right, if you know that passage, he speaks to us in his son. Well, that's true. He did. But now she says in these days, the day she lives in, he speaks to them by the testimonies of his spirit, spirit of prophecy. There was never a time when God instructed his people more earnestly than he instructs them now. Now, did you catch that? There is never a time, never, there's never a time. There has never been a time. There's never a time. When God instructed his people more earnestly than he instructs them now concerning his will and the course that he would have them pursue. Now again, context, she's talking about her gift, her prophecies, her insight, her vision, her inspired counsels. There's never been a time where God has instructed his people more earnestly through the testimonies of his spirit than he is right now concerning his will and how we would have how he would have us pursue them. But, they will pro- but will they profit by his teaching? Will they receive his reproofs and heed his warnings? Will God accept no? God will accept no partial obedience. Okay, so I'm delivering it. It's coming. The spirit of prophecy is in me. The question really is, because he's never been more earnest than he is right now for you to obey his will. Are you going to do it? Are you going to believe it? Are you going to heed the warnings? He isn't going to accept partial obedience. I don't think there's any way for me to read volume four, pages 147 and 148 without saying she expects me to do what she says, hear what she says, understand what she says, respond to what she says, and not partially obey it. Because it isn't her, it's God. It's God's inspired counsels. In ancient times, God spoke to men by the mouth of prophets and apostles. You know, and I've debated so many Adventists on the concept of the authority of LGBT, and I know you're going to turn and say, well, she said this and she said... What do you do with that? See, I got to take clear passages to interpret unclear passages. And in this case, if I'm going to exegete Ellen G. White, I think she understands her writings to be very, very authoritative. She says this about her writings. Yes, it was a letter, but prompted by the Spirit of God to bring before your minds things that have been shown me. So again, that's revelation. I've seen it. John sees something, he reveals it to us. It's authoritative. We memorize it, we do it, we heed the warnings, we obey it, not partially, fully. In these letters which I write, in the testimonies I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I'm simply the prophet. 
I am now bringing information from God and I'm presenting it to you. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in, the vision, in vision, the precious rays of light shining from the throne. I don't think that's a take it or leave it or go home as good Bereans and figure out whether it's true or see if it harmonizes with the Scripture. And yet that's the official position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. See if it harmonizes. Ellen G. White goes on to say, this is from uh, Selected Messages, Book 1, pages 27 through 28. What voice will you acknowledge as the voice of God? Great question. Need that one answered. What power has the Lord in reserve to correct your errors and show you your course as it is? What power to work in the church? If you refuse to believe until every shadow of uncertainty and every possibility of doubt is removed, you will never believe. Speaking about her own ministry. Now, all you have to do, because in the abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable, to quote the proverb. And if she's not a prophet, that's the only infallible guide we have, is the work of God's Spirit through the prophets guiding their words. If she's not, you're going to find errors. What do you do with those errors? What do you do with predictions about the Civil War, about America being pulverized, about England joining the war, about, about whatever, the 144,000, about the door closing, as she said, the door of mercy closing at 1844, then it reopens. And What do you do about that? Well, the defenders claim her prophecies were with error. They'll say that. She made mistakes. She made mistakes. I won't even get into the whole claim of plagiarism, right? Because in one preface she says, I think a great controversy, she says in the preface, you know, that she's researched these things and and basically gives a head nod to the fact that this is an all original work. But there are, I have entire books on my shelf with nothing but parallel columns. I gave you a couple last week uh, of of Quimby or a couple weeks ago of, of Quimby and Mary Baker Eddy, but I got page after page after page of that, of Erdesheim being lifted and, and put into her books. And, and to me, that's, I mean, you can find people from Andrews University defending the fact that she's not plagiarizing, and yet if anybody turned in a paper in their classrooms with that kind of, 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 of commonality, it's going to be called plagiarism. But I said I'm not going to get into that. Nevertheless, what do you do with the errors, Okay. Here is uh, SDA for me, and this book caught my attention, Doctrinal Essays and Interactions. Well, I want to learn about it from the Seventh-day Adventists, what I need, I need on a doctrinal theological level uh, to, to read your essays and, and figure out how we deal with these issues. Well, so they deal with her, her errors in this book. Likewise with Ellen White. She did not always enjoy, here's how it's put, it's a good way to put it, a mature understanding of the truth, okay? In fact... According to Robert Olson of the White Estate, right, the keeper of of her stuff, she, quote, did not at first understand the meaning of the open door in February 1845. This open door controversy, it was called. The door of mercy that was shut in 1844. Called it the midnight cry. Uh, If you dismiss the message of 1844, well, then you can't be saved. And I could quote all that for you. She's talking about the fact you're done. If you reject the 1844 uh, at the time it happened, you're done. If you're a fleeing Millerite, uh, whatever. But she didn't quite understand that. She didn't have a mature understanding of it. Uh, She had previously mistaken her December 1844 vision that 17-year-old Ellen should misinterpret one of her visions should elicit no surprise when one remembers that at one time the Apostle Peter mistakenly believed in a shut door. Okay? Now you've just impugned the prophet, which you can in a narrative text in the gospel. Right? We're not talking about in his prophetic work in First or Second Peter, right? There's a difference there. 
Olson continues, the keeper of the White Estate. In 1846 and 1847 printings of Ellen White's first vision included the sentence in the box above, it was just as impossible for them to get on the path again and go to the city as all the wicked world which God had rejected. In other words, those that left who fled this Millerite movement and who weren't willing to see the 1844 invisible coming across, done, right? Now, when they reprinted that, they did not... They didn't add that. They took it out, even though the preface said, nothing here has been edited or changed. It was edited and changed. That was not true. In 1851, the printing of the same version omitted the sentence. Well, he's admitting that because all the critics have admitted that. Why was it omitted? Ellen White, no doubt, realized that the passage had been misunderstood by some of her readers as well as by herself. Okay? So I misunderstood it. My readers misunderstood it. We'll take it out. Okay? Again, when you, you're claiming inspired counsels from God, seeing things and simply being the conduit to bring it, I, I'm immediately having problems with the way she presents her authority. Now, today I'll talk to Adventists and say, well, I don't know. I don't think she's infallible. I don't think she's inerrant. And I'm with you. I can clearly see that. I've done my homework. I know she's not inerrant. See, but you cannot now claim, as I'm about to show you, and you'll be appalled at this, that the Bible does the same thing. Okay? That was from doctrinal essays and interactions. The defenders equate errors to biblical prophets. Now note this from the same book, Defending Ellen G. White. Is it true that genuine prophets never suffer from theological error? I have an answer for that. Jesus didn't think so. Exhibit A is John the Baptist, that desert prophet who announced the coming Messiah suffered from a serious theological error. When people asked him how to be saved, he put on them a works trip. The Apostle Paul even had to rebaptize converts confused by his misunderstanding of the gospel. Okay? Thoroughly and roundly reject that nonsense. Okay? I mean, we've talked about John the Baptist in our study of Luke. There is no way in any sense of any way when he in his prophetic office spoke to the crowds and all that we've studied and recorded is in any way in conflict with the message of what Christ was doing as he wraps up the the old covenant age and inaugurates the new age. You cannot tell me, hey, exhibit A, John the Baptist is in error when he preaches prophetically. No way. What you're left with here is a sense that you can have prophets of God seeing visions from heaven, relaying those to people, but sometimes not quite getting it right and making predictions and saying things that aren't true, but still has the spirit of prophecy and is still a voice from heaven. That's what we call today and has been called in many analysis of this problem, the fallible prophets caveat. In other words, there can be prophets that have authority from God, but they're not always right. They can make mistakes which we would say that the scripture is inerrant and infallible because when the prophet speaks in his office as a prophet, he speaks with infallibility. That is the standard orthodox view of scripture. Now, I just threw this up because this whole series is about pointing out the problem. I'm not here to be able, with the time I have allowed, to teach you the right doctrines on these things. But if you want to, uh, chapter 6 in the book not long ago put out by MacArthur, Strange Fire, and I know it caused a lot of people a headache. But this chapter is very good. I'm not saying that all chapters aren't very good. Actually, it's a very good book. Um, But in chapter 6, the folly of fallible prophets would be a good place to go, not just to deal with the issue of Ellen G. White, he's dealing with the modern Kansas City prophets and all the people in these Pentecostal movements that are claiming to be prophets and have the authority of God, and yet they want to leave room for being fallible. Uh, this certainly applies, though she's not mentioned as not a part of his debate or discussion, but the paradigm fits. 
Uh, so if you're looking for something to process what's the biblical view of, of, of prophecy, this would be a good place to go. Chapter 6, MacArthur's book, Strange Fire, put out a couple years ago. All right. The essence of this is the message of the three angels. Revelation chapter 14, I actually printed it there for you. Let me read it for you real quick. I saw another angel. This has become really the banner passage that summarizes what Adventism is and why it's unique and why it's the message for the end times. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. And he said with a loud voice, this angel did, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made, the heaven, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring of, springs of water. Another angel, second angel, a second angel followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who was made, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Number three, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of the wrath of God poured in full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the call. For the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the message of the three angels in the middle of this description of the tribulational period, which I understand to be yet future, coming in the future. This hyper interest in biblical prophecy, wanting to read every passage for themselves and for their day, became the banner passage for Seventh-day Adventists. That's why they have the Three Angels Broadcasting Network. Because it's all about this passage. That's why their logos, you have the three trumpets on the, on, on the uh, radio uh, network. All of these three are the angels giving the message because these are the three messages that are unique that were revealed because we didn't know them otherwise. Revelation through the last day woman who had the spirit of prophecy. And what are those? Okay, number one, this judgment. There's a judgment that is said, fear God. Right? Because the judgment has come. You gotta worship him who made heaven and earth. The judgment. What's the judgment? Well, to her, it's the 1844, October 22nd, arrival of Christ into the secret invisible sanctuary of 1844. It's called the investigative judgment. Let's give you a little bit on that because we're running out of time, which I thought we might be at this point. This is what I called earlier the pre-advent return of Christ. He's not coming to earth. He's coming to judge professing Christians. So he looks at his church, which has professing Christians in it, and he's going to now judge their lives. How does that work? All the sins of your life and my life and everybody in this room who claims some kind of identification with the church of Jesus Christ, all of our sins are recorded in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary. So they're all there. Christ has now come out of the holy place to in the heavenly temple now, start to try the cases of his people. And Satan is there, and there's a debate going on about your life and mine. And based on our lives and keeping the commandments, as Revelation 14 says, we are now going to be judged by our works. Now again, those that had this hyper-grace view back in the day didn't like any discussion of Christians being judged, which I have no problem with, because I understand what the Scripture says regarding the judgment of God's people. And I have no problem recognizing that real faith comes with fruit. So... I understand the fact that there's going to be real fruit. And in one sense, you can say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I'm with you there. 
Grandparents may have struggled with those phrases because they weren't taught very well on the rewards or the judgment or the bema seat of Christ or all the rest. I got all that. But what they're saying is something miraculous took place in the fact that 1844, God revealed this information about the investigative judgment. It was the message of the angel in Revelation 14. What happened in 1844 is the fulfillment of that. The sanctuary is now being cleansed of our sins. My sins, your sins, the sins of everyone, it's now being tried before Christ. Christ is looking at our lives and evaluating our life. Now, where this goes wrong for a lot of people, particularly in early Adventism, and it took years for them to finally make clear statements about justification by faith alone, which now they make. Their website claims it's all about grace, finished work of Christ on the cross, and I'm with you on all that. It's fantastic. But they struggled with the concept of this is a judgment of works and keeping the commandment. In early days, they had a lot of overstatements, which they now would say are overstatements, of talking about this in terms of being saved by works, which all of them will deny at this point, which they should. One of the interesting features of the investigative judgment is that all of the sins of the people who are God's people are placed on Satan. Satan is the scapegoat. He bears our sin, not the way Christ bore our sins on the cross, but he is going to be exiled from the heavenly sanctuary with the sins of you and I on him, taking that picture from Leviticus of the scapegoat. That's message number one. Now, I can read that a hundred times and not get that from that passage. I need extra revelation to figure that out. You can't tell me. I can find that from Daniel. I've studied Daniel extensively. I don't see any of Daniel helping me with that passage get to an investigative judgment in 1844 because I do not agree with their exegesis of Daniel chapter 8. Right? I can't take Daniel chapter 9, go back, find a code there, and take it to Daniel chapter, chapter 8. I see that as Antiochus Epiphanes. I see it all as fulfilled in the intertestamental period. Are there some problems with the lack of the vav between evening and morning? Sure, I get that. Could this be a time frame that I can't quite figure out, the terminus in the beginning? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, yeah, but I think all the people there that recognized the fulfillment of these things, they got it. They understood it. It was an attestation of God's prophetic word through Daniel. I can never get here without extra biblical, quote-unquote, revelation, which is what Ellen G. White is claiming to provide us, the investigative judgment. Babylon. This is the message of, of the second angel. Second angel followed along saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immoralities. So there's Babylon. And if you know the book of Revelation, we studied it together years ago. And we talked about what it means in terms of that Babylon in the book of Revelation and the world system. And now it's been judged in Rev 14. As we studied through that book, we understood its role. Great. We, we understand the second angel is stating the, 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 the condemnation on, on the world system. Well, for them, it's not what we would understand as we study the book of Revelation. It's the churches. And initially, and this has changed a little bit through the early years to the later years to where it is now, but it still has as its origin said through the one who has inspired counsels for us that this is the people that rejected the 1844 return of Christ, which even applies, I suppose, for me now because I'm looking at it, understand it, studied it, reject it. I reject it. Then I am Babylon. I am the Babylon who's made the nations drink the wine of the passion of the sexual immoralities because I reject it. Another way it's put by many Adventists is any non-Adventist church that fails to join the remnant. They are the remnant. They are then Babylon. Okay? Now, there's a few ways in which this has been softened lately in the stuff that I read in the 21st century versus the 20th century and certainly when I read back in the 19th century on how people define these things. They have said there are real Christians in Babylon. 
They didn't used to say that, at least not the way they're saying it now. In the Roman Catholic Church, they'll say, and in the Protestant churches, they may be apostate, but there's real Christians. There may be Christians there, but here's the caveat. When they get the real light, as Ellen G. White said, of the problem of what we're going to see in the third angel's message and the truth that has been presented through the first angel's message of the coming of Christ into the heavenly sanctuary, if you reject it once you receive the light, then you're not. You can't possibly be saved. In, because you're going to then be damned with the rest of the world, as we'll see in the third angel's message. What's the third angel's message? Well, it's the mark of the beast. And as it says, another angel followed along. Anyone who worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or its hand will also drink the wine of, the, of, God's, of God's wrath, pulled in, poured in full strength into the cup of his anger, and it goes on and on, and it's a dark passage about the judgment of God. Well, what is the judgment? What is the mark of the beast? Well, it's Sunday worship. That's the claim. The claim is if you worship on Sunday, you've received the mark of the beast. Now, again, she'll say the mark of the beast has not been given yet. It will be given to those who reject Sabbath, Saturday worship. And, and so you're already setting yourself up for it. And there's been a lot of careful you know, parsing of her words to say, well, you don't have it yet, but you continue in a dangerous path. And eventually you will, because all this culminates in the very end of time. The apostate church is setting themselves up for this. And I'll quote a little bit of this for you. Saturday Sabbath is the test of loyalty to Christ. If you are loyal to Christ, you have the light of the knowledge of the Ten Commandments. If you understand the call of God for you to worship on Saturday, uh, then you're tested. Are you going to be loyal? Because right now the pressure is on for you to worship on Sunday because that's the apostate church telling you to do that. As a matter of fact, it all started when the Roman Catholic Church got underway in their mind, which was with Constantine there in the third century and the Edict of Milan and all that went on in Nicaea. All of that started the pagan Sunday worship and it was imposed by the pagan emperor Constantine who loves to get thrown under the bus by everyone. And we've talked about him. I think Pete's taught on him and I certainly have. Nevertheless, I'm not here to defend Constantine. But I am here to say that it's absolutely foolish for you to think that Sunday worship started in 321. It's absolutely absurd. I mean, Ignatius, Barnabas, the Didache. I can go on and on. I can go back to the New Testament to show you that repeatedly, that the reason this was important is because Christ was resurrected on that day. They met on that day. His appearances to the disciples were on that day. They collected funds on that day. They had church on that day. John, even though they want to say he was on a Saturday Sabbath on Patmos, was not. He was on the Lord's Day, which is consistently defined throughout the Scripture as the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. Um, So long before 321 came around, it didn't take the fourth century for us to impose worship. And even when met with that information, there's a lot of sharp guys that are Adventists who say, well, it it was mandated then. Well, it's not mandated. It's not even mandated now. No one puts a gun to your head and says worship on 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 Sunday. If you're warned of the pagan observance and you don't repent, then you will receive the mark of the beast. And that's what I said earlier. Didn't know I had it on a screen here. That comes, by the way, from her own writings, The Last Days. That's one of her books, page 226. If you keep Saturday Sabbath, the passage started in Revelation 14.1. We didn't read the first verse, but it talks about those who have God's name on their forehead. Those are the ones that are sealed, the 144,000. The 144,000, as it says, have the seal of God on them. The seal of God is Saturday worship. When you worship the Lord on the Sabbath, you receive the seal of God. You're obedient. You're keeping the commandments. You're not selling out. You're not a coward. Let's see what she wrote here from the Great Controversy, which is probably one of the most important books in terms of the theology, the investigative judgment, and so many other things. She says this. 
as the Sabbath has become a special point of controversy throughout Christendom, okay, which I don't think it has, but okay, and religious and secular authorities have combined to enforce the observance of Sunday, okay, well, that hadn't happened yet. You can see what you want to see in the Council of Nicaea or the Edict of Milan or the conversion of Constantine to the 4th century councils, fine, but we're not there yet, but they think it's going to come. The persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand to worship on Sunday will make them objects of universal uh, execration. They'll be, they'll be condemned. They'll be uh, uh, people of derision. They'll be cursed. It will be urged that the few who stand in opposition to an institution of the church and a law of the state, which I think is still coming, ought not be tolerated. It is better for them to suffer than for a whole nations to be thrown into confusion and lawlessness. Okay, there's more on this. This argument will appear conclusive and a decree will finally be issued against those who hollow, who make holy the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. So the death penalty is going to be for Sabbath keepers on Saturday. Romanism in the old world and the apostate Protestantism in the new will pursue a similar course toward those who honor the divine precepts. So here's this martyr complex that they're going to be pinned against the wall by a apostate Protestant church and an evil Catholic church, Romanism, and they're all going to be there as a remnant of people that are gutsy enough to worship on the right day, the day of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Now again, I'm here to point out what they believe. I've spent hours and hours teaching you about the right things in these things. And so I would say, if you're going, well, I don't know, maybe it's in the Ten Commandments, maybe we should worship on Saturday. Go at least and listen to a few sermons. I just typed in Sabbath on focal point. You can get a little bit of what's been taught, particularly in the book of Hebrews regarding this. Uh, some in Luke even that we've touched on. Uh, if you want a book on this that's very helpful, and it's written by, uh, it's edited by Carson, and it's contributed to by lots of people, from Sabbath to Lord's Day, it's a little expensive, and it's paperback, I wish it were on Kindle, um, it's not, it may be on Logos, they didn't check. That one is a more academic book, uh, but a good one, on the fact that this is nonsense, that Constantine did this, and that the Sabbath was definitely a part of the ceremonial law, even though it's in the Decalogue, it is a sign and a seal of the Old Covenant, and, and again, I don't have time to prove that for those of you that are listening to this as skeptics of me. If you want a little short book on this, which would be helpful, I found this helpful. There's a new one to me just recently. Should Christians Keep the Sabbath? A Refutation of the Sabbath of Seventh-day Adventism and, he, and the Hebrews Roots Movement, which is another movement that wants to keep the Sabbath and claims to be Christian. So in claiming Christ, they want us to keep the Sabbath. Chris White now, I don't know much about Chris White, but I read this book, and, and I, I thought it was helpful, and it's very short. I wanted to find one for you that you could just quickly go through. And then I, I just went looking around to see if he had any other versions. I love this. You can go on YouTube and type in, Should Christians Keep the Sabbath in the New Covenant? And basically, it's the audio book of him reading the entire book on, um, on, on YouTube. And it's an hour and 32 minutes for him to read it, but he's got some cool things that come up on the screen. And since YouTube, if you don't know, go to the gear, go up, and you can listen and a time, time and a quarter, time and a half, or double time, if you're good at that, and you can listen to this thing in half the time. But it's all there, and it's all free, and it's basically nothing more than the text of should the Christians keep the Sabbath. And I thought it was a great approach to starting big with covenants, understanding covenants, and along the way answering some of the basic Seventh-day Adventist uh, responses to why the, the, the Sabbath should be kept. But it's helpful. Chris White, who I don't know much about. He may have a third eyeball for all I know. But um, anyway... Other distinctives, real quick, as we wrap this up, that at least I should touch on, because you're going to say, I didn't know that, and he didn't tell me. Well, now I'm going to tell you. They believe in soul sleep. They believe that the spirit cannot exist without the body. 
You cannot, you are a, such a homogeneous unit that your spirit and your body, they, they, they're going to exist together. And when your body dies, then your spirit has to go dormant. Therefore, they believe in what we call soul sleep. You, you have inanimate activity at, at your death, okay? Which, of course, we could go into. I think Walter Martin did a good job in that section on his book, Refuting Soul Sleep. It was pretty good, and there's several. We've done it from the platform here, and we do it all the time on the radio program. They believe in annihilationism, which means uh, you're, if you're not saved and you don't believe or you get the mark of the beast or you worship on the wrong day at the end or you are whatever, uh, you're, you're lost and God's mad at you, you're not going to have a problem for very long. They think going to hell and being conscious in a place where you're alive day and night, uh, that is contrary to the love of God. Even as the third angel's message says, day and night you're going to suffer. Uh, it's contrary to the love of God. Their website's big on that. And certainly that's been their teaching from way, way back. There is no conscious existence in hell. A great book for that, if you haven't read this book, by our friend Chris Morgan over there at Cal Baptist uh, and Robert Peterson. Great guys. We've had them here in our church, at least as friends. Uh, should have them come speak sometime. But Hell Under Fire is a great book. Al Mohler, uh, lots of guys contributed to this book. But it's a very good book. Even if you just read the first two chapters on how the process of giving up on a conscious hell has deteriorated, not just in Adventism and JWs, but all kinds of Christian uh, denominations, you, can, uh, you should read that book. You should have that book. I think that, I don't know if it's available electronically or not. Because if it is, you can download it and start reading it tonight. Other distinctives? Soul sleep, I already said that. Uh, I said that. Health and diet, they're into that. Uh, here's a statement from uh, Ellen G. White on the councils on diets and food. There's so much talk, and it's very interesting reading about what she taught about, you know, even heavy dresses pushing down on your innards and making you sick or whatever. But um, talks a lot about health. She says, let, let none who profess godliness regard with indifference the health of the body. She said this from the beginning. And flatter themselves that intemperance is no sin and will not affect their spirituality. It will. And she talked a lot about that. Your lust you know, is based on what you eat, your sinful impulses. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, a close sympathy exists between the physical and the moral nature, which again, for them, there's this inextricable homogeneous connection to where you can't even exist independently, have a conscious spiritual existence outside the body. You've got to wait for the physical resurrection. That made a lot of sense. At least there's consistency there. And so there was a big emphasis on that. Um, an interesting book, by a son of a Adventist preacher. He's an agnostic. He's not even a Christian. But he wrote a book called The Prophetess of Health, Ellen G. White. It's a fascinating read on the health aspects of Ellen G. White's writings. He knows the information. He quotes it well. He quotes it in context. And, and Ronald Numbers, I don't recommend him as a person. He's not a theologian. He's not even a believer in, in, in God. But uh, his expose of what she taught, I think, is a fair handed uh, presentation of some of the interesting things that she uh, espoused about health. And, um, and it's been a bit, a bit of an embarrassment to uh, Adventism, but I think it's fair. I mean, he's very intelligent. Passivism, as I said, that uh, Hacksaw Ridge or whatever it's called certainly uh, talks about that. They are conscientious objectors to any combat roles. Okay? That's why they've always encouraged their people that they're very patriotic. I mean, they're great citizens and they want to help in time of war, but they've encouraged their sons and daughters to be a part of the medical corps. 
cores, and they've encouraged that. That's why they've been so big in healthcare. The Adventist health system is the largest nonprofit Protestant healthcare system in the United States. It's huge. They care for 4 million patients annually, and they do a fantastic, uh, fantastic job caring for people. Matter of fact, my whole extended family uh, are doctors and nurses and surgeons in the Seventh day Adventist uh, background. And I should say that, I guess, my, my wife's family comes out of, or many of them in Adventism, uh, very big in the organization. Authors, there's a building named after my uh, wife's grandfather at Union College, um, professors at Union College in Nebraska and College Dale. Uh, so I've had a lot of firsthand experience in my own extended family on these issues. So I understand what you may be going through when you're talking to your Adventist friends. Uh, I've been there. Uh, that didn't answer all the questions, but I should say this. Because their theology is, is right regarding Christ, because they say the right things on their website about faith, because a lot of their preachers uh, spend less time talking about Ellen G. White than they do the scriptures, there's a lot of truly converted people that are a part of the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, my concern is what they do with Ellen G. White, and maybe it's time to, to get past the investigative judgment and this talk about the Sabbath is a great misunderstanding and soul sleep and the eternality of hell. All those things are problematic. Uh, but we can certainly see some of the teaching on the gospel has been uh, efficacious. People have been saved. And uh, there are some very zealous believers that trust in Jesus Christ in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I can't say that for most of the groups we've covered or will cover uh, Certainly, we get to Satanism. There will be none in that group that I can say that of. So, we're we're in we're in a, we're in a much different neighborhood tonight. All right, let's pray together. God, so much information, trying to get it out, and the economy of words has been so difficult throughout this whole series. Trying to present a helpful, fair, balanced overview of a denominational or religious system, um, I mean, a group in this case that claims Christ and even claims a biblical gospel, salvation by grace, sola scriptura, and, and try and jam that all in in an hour and a half, very difficult. But I pray, God, that there might have been uh, an expression of your grace even in how this came together tonight that would give a, a helpful overview, an enlightening look at this. And um, God, I pray that's been the case for everything that we've covered, Islam, uh, Roman Catholicism, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, even Scientology last week. I, I hope these things are helpful for people as they encounter a world filled with different labels and different belief systems. So, God, we do pray uh, just for your grace and conversations with those we encounter. Uh, I pray that we would maybe even see some of those who are uh, burdened with this extra-biblical information and be able to see them be freed from some of this and get back to the Word of God and really practice Sola Scriptura in every sense and not be reading into so many uh, prophetic passages in apocalyptic texts, particularly in Revelation and Daniel, that uh, can lead them astray if they're read myopically or they're read with an ethnocentric or egocentric perspective uh, that leads them to all kinds of fanciful conclusions. So help us to be very uh, fair about how we read the text, particularly eschatological texts, and may we be helpful to those that uh, need to, to look more objectively at these texts. And God, I pray we can be used in that regard. Thanks for this team. Thanks for their patience and their endurance and their energy, even in listening uh, each week from week to week. And I know it's, uh, it's a lot of information. So bless them for 
sitting through it and ingesting it all. In Jesus' name, amen.